Well, it's good to be with you guys again uh, tonight. And I would invite you to turn to Psalm 146. <clears throat> Psalm 146, and um, in terms of how it's the tune that's put together to it in the Trinity hymnal, um, I, I really do love just simply the way in which the words and the tune fit together uh, for hallelujah, praise Jehovah, oh my soul, Jehovah, praise. Um, and just the reminders that it makes to us regarding the comforts that are given to us as the people of God through the provision of uh, our Lord. So with that, um, Psalm 146, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this night. We read, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, while I live, I will praise the Lord, I'll sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord watches over the strangers, he relieves the fatherless and widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. So through our conference here, we've been dealing with the idea of certainty in uncertainty. How is it that we can have this sense of steadfastness or this idea of being established even when we see everything is topsy-turvy and uncertain. And last night we saw that certainty can be had in the fact or in the truth that God has promised his presence. Tonight we want to see it in God's provision. Now this psalm, the purpose of this psalm is really to direct us regarding the praise that we ought to make to God, which is the right response that we ought to have. And yet, as we reflect on the praise that this psalm encourages us to have or to take, yet the way in which the author here draws our attention to it is based on the provision or the strength or the glory of God. One way we might look at it is to see this, is that as we see the strength of God, it strengthens us to praise Him, even in the midst of uncertainty. And so tonight, how might we be strengthened? How might we be encouraged? How might we uh, be directed in order to respond to how God has provided or to see all the ways in which God has provided and consequently praise Him and express gratitude to Him, gratitude to Him even in the midst of things being upside down and inside out? Two points. 
The first point is, look to the Lord. The second one is, look to the Lord. And now you're going, what do you mean? Well, they're different looks, but it makes it easy for us to understand that, no, there are two points to the sermon, but in some respects, it's the same point, but yet as we look at it, it will be different. But before we see how the psalmist directs us to look to the Lord, let's consider a few things just to help us jump into this psalm. The first one is this. We don't know who wrote it. That's interesting. It's, it's just interesting in the sense that this psalm doesn't tell us who the author is. If you look at other psalms, you see more times than not, you at least see David or Moses or Asaph uh, identified regarding the writing. But here, no author is made known to us. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in sacred scripture. It does. The second thing is, we don't really know when the psalm was written. So we don't know the author. We don't know when or the timing of it. Some people assert that it was written at the time in which Israel left Babylon to go then rebuild the city of Jerusalem under the time of Haggai and Zechariah, but that's speculation. We do find this psalm at the end of the Psalter. And what's important about the last five or so psalms, starting with 146 and going to 150, is that in all of these psalms, we are directed towards doxology, the idea of praise. Every one of these psalms, starting with 146, starts with the same word, and it means hallelujah. Now, hallelujah is actually Hebrew. It's not like the cartoon I saw one time that said that hallelujah was Latin, meaning the sermon is done or the minister has stopped talking. That's not what hallelujah means. It means, it's combined from two words. The first word, hallel, is praise. The second one ties in with Yah, or the Lord, and it simply is that reminder of praising the Lord. And in each one of these psalms, at the end of the Psalter, we then see the children of Israel, as they would come together in order to sing, they would see that the last reminder set before them in their songbook was this call to praise the Lord. And we then see how it's set forth before them, whether they would be individuals that were called upon to do so, or the people of God together, or all of creation, or even to the ends of the earth, they would come together in order to declare the praise of God. And in this psalm, the call to us is to look to the Lord. To look to the Lord regarding his power and his might and his strength, his intimate care for his people, the truth that he is ever-present even when he seems like he's not or it looks like he isn't there, we nonetheless are called to praise him. Now, as we just think about this sense of this call to praise God, it is necessary for us to do so. And I don't mean it's simply necessary because God calls us to do that, but it's necessary for us to do so because when we lose sight of this 
recognition of praising God, then it's easy to lose sight of God himself. In other words, praise strengthens us to draw attention away from ourselves or our circumstances or things that are happening in the world to ultimately redirect our eyes and our attention to God himself. And it's easy to neglect our praise of God when things are crazy. When things are upside down. When things aren't going the way in which you thought it would or there's a whole host of afflictions or struggles or difficulties. Now, I think it's important to note that even as there is this struggle to praise the Lord, you need to hear it doesn't mean that you're an unbeliever. Sometimes we play that card, or sometimes the tempter would set that before us. Well, you're not really willing to praise God right now. What does that mean? Sometimes other Christians will come along and do the same, won't they? Well, it's more, I think, a reflection of desperate nature of what's going on or the struggle in relation to the circumstances or simply the overwhelming aspect of what's before you. It's a weakness of faith. It's not the absence of faith, it's the weakness of it. We see this. I mean, that's why James had to encourage us when he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because embracing trials aren't very pleasant. And furthermore, the presence of trials does at times affect the way in which we praise. It's hard to be like Job, isn't it? under the loss of everything with relation to possessions and to people and to, to uh, you know, everything that he owned to simply be willing after he is bombarded with news upon news upon news to simply bow down and to worship and to cover his mouth and simply ascribe worth to God. various problems and the occasions for affliction do cause there to be times where we lose confidence in the truth that God is still present or to even struggle to praise Him in time of need. And consequently, we fail or forget to praise God. And that's where I think this psalm is so useful. To simply set before us in two different ways this call to look to the Lord, particularly in relation to His provision. Now, as we look to Him in verses 1 through 4, there are a few different things that are set before us. The first thing is that this look to the Lord isn't with question or disdain, but rather it's in adoration. Listen to what is written in verse 1. 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Ultimately, the psalmist is calling himself and all God's people to come together in order to declare the worth or the value of God. It's a public call. It's a private call. It's a corporate call. It's an individual call. It's a call to one. It's a call to all. It's important for us to hear this point. The church today, in general, I'm not talking about this particular church, but overall, the 21st century church today, I think, struggles with this balance between corporate and individual, or should I say it struggles to uphold or maintain both? Have you ever had a conversation with a coworker, or a friend, even a family member, and said, hey, you should come and join uh, me for church this coming Sunday. Uh, here's where we're meeting. Here are the times. And their response is, I don't need to come with you. I can worship God in my own way, on my own terms. I can worship God as much in a building as I can on a golf course, or while I'm fishing, or while I'm doing something else of pleasure. But the psalmist calls all of God's people here to come together in praise. And so this isn't just simply a matter of allowing us to say, well, I can... I can do things on my own terms. Or even how individuals may say, well, I'll join with you corporately through the comfort of my couch. I'll stream your service, and consequently, I can still be with you and yet not be with you. And I know we're putting this on Facebook, and this isn't meant to criticize that. That's not what I'm going after. But to use this in substitute or in the place of, that is what I'm going after. But there can also be the flip side. Well, I worshiped with God's people on a particular Sunday. Maybe I was even there twice, and so guess what? I'm good. I don't need to take the time during the week in order to think about how I might individually worship God. And so it can be easy to neglect the individual call for personal study, for personal reflection, even to take time, no matter how awful it sounds, and the dogs may join with you to actually sing praise to the Lord. And so the psalmist then here encourages us to look to the Lord in adoration in calling God's people to come together. And yet this adoring look should also be a determined look. Look at verse 2. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. I mean, think about that use of the word, I will do this. Parents, you ever had that challenge with your kids? Kids, have you ever made that challenge to your parents? Uh, you will clean your room. No, I will not. Now you have the battle of the wills as to who's going to win out. They are each determined as to who's going to be successful. 
I will go spend time with my friends. I will play Xbox. This isn't some passive aspect of connection or activity. This is determined. Notice how the psalmist here doesn't hold up to a time previously. He isn't saying, while I live, I used to praise my God, but now I have better things to do. Or, while I live, I will one day praise my God, but right now, I got my own things to do, and I don't have time, and I just don't really connect with it, and it just doesn't really mean anything, but eventually it will, and that's when I'll do this. Not so much. It's an action of commitment that is occurring now and will continue to take place. And notice how he brings this to himself. He is instructing himself by the thing that he's declaring when he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's encouraging himself while he comes together, saying, while I live, I will praise the Lord. While I, I will sing to praises to my God, while I have my being. He's also then, in, in, if I didn't say instructing, he's instructing. If I didn't say directing, he's directing. If I didn't say encouraging, he's doing that. So encouragement, instruction, and direction is all occurring through this. Listen to this for a moment. Some of you today may be struggling to praise God. You're struggling because of something that is taking place in your life. It could be that you receive news regarding your health. It could be an incident as it relates to a struggle in your family. It could be a situation that's occurring as it pertains to the church. It could be something that's happening in your job. But as you're working through it, as it's occurred in your life at this point in time, it's causing you to say, God, I know you're there, but I'm not ready to ascribe worth and praise and value to you right now. It is tough to praise God in those situations. Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk was in a situation in which there was a time for despair and there was a time of sorrow and there was great affliction. Notice how he describes this towards the end of chapter 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Remember, this is an agricultural community. It's a community that's dependent upon livestock. It's dependent upon the produce of the field and of the vine. And he's describing a situation in terms of his community where their economic value is no more. They have nothing that will support them or sustain them. It's all dried up. It's all gone. It's been lost. It's been decimated. 
Yet what does he say? Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on the high hills. You have it bad. You have it hard. You have it uncertain. You have uncertainty in your life. You are full of despair. When you are falling apart, when your life is falling apart, when things are, are becoming unraveled, your best action and your best thing to do is to stop and bow down before God and go, God, I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're going to accomplish. And yet, nonetheless, I know that you're God. And I know you deserve my praise. It's helpful because the moment that you can take your attention off of the temporary and direct it to your eternal helper, it assures you of what? What we heard last night. That God truly is present and that he is an ever-present help in time of need. But notice that he also gives a directed look. This is found in verse 3 and 4, back in terms of our passage. Verse 3 and 4, Don't put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. I say directed look in that the direction is to God, but you have this contrast from God to man. And he says the direction of your praise ought not be to anyone else. We sometimes may feel like it could be man, right? We sometimes feel as if when we don't know who else to turn to, maybe the government can help us. Granted, we know the greatest lie perpetuated ever, as Ronald Reagan told us, was, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But when things aren't going well or you're struggling financially, it was nice to get a stimulus check, wasn't it? That helped. Maybe they could give us a little more and take care of all of our concerns. Maybe someone else is your helper, a parent, a close confidant, a good friend. But what do we see about man? There's a play on words regarding man in this verse. When we note that his spirit uh, departs and he returns to earth, the point that's being made is that we don't trust in that which is earthly because they will return to the earth. The psalmist here in making this play is noting they come from the earth, they will return to the earth. They're taken from dust, they will return to dust. 
And this is the reason why our attention, our appraise, our value, or trust is not to ultimately be found in man because man is here only a short time. The psalmist says that we're here for 70, maybe 80 years, and then what? Elsewhere, the scriptures describe our life as a vapor, that it's, it's here for a moment and then gone the next. It's, it's like watching this tremendous mist that exists across the meadow early in the day, only to see that the sun comes up and that which was, was covered in a dense fog and it was quite cool is now gone. It's no more. The sun is bright and shining and, and that refreshing experience is no more. So also with man. He's here, he lives, he dies. And as he dies, the psalmist here tells us that yes, the next person will then come, but that individual who died, their plans die with them, their thoughts die with them. It is no more. Their life is mortal, it's short-lived, and it's done. So the psalmist then says, Direct your attention to the living God. Direct it in an intentional, determined manner as you seek then to yield forth your adoration to Him. But I said that my point was to look to the Lord and look to the Lord. Verses 5 through 10 tell us the second reason why we do this. And this look is in relation to all that he's done, the provisions that he's made for us to cause us then to be willing and to trust and to be encouraged and strengthened to actually praise him. And so my hope here by looking at these next verses is that you will feel like you are on the beach. How many of you have ever been to the ocean? Raise your hand. So... When I was a kid, I remember this experience one time. We were living in Florida. It was Jupiter Beach. And the undertow of this beach was incredible. Because as you're standing there, it was almost as if it was so powerful. If you thought about going there, it immediately drew you in and you were there. But you're standing there and, you know, you're struggling to fight against the current or that pole that's taking you and you feel like you're getting away only to feel the sand be pulled out from underneath your feet and next thing you know you get sucked into it and you're taken out for a time and as you watch and see this huge host of, of wave here, you see arms and legs all over and you're then become one of those arms and legs as you're then cast into the shore and then the water comes and you try to get away only to find that you can't get away so you're pulled back again and you're sucked into it and you're rattled around and boom and when you're a kid you go that was fun let's keep doing it and when you're a adult you're going get out of here no, that description of that undertow of the water being cast in the waves and thrust back then onto the shore is the experience that I want you to have over these next few minutes. Not to hurt you so that you come up going, oh, I can't breathe, oh, I'll never do that again. But to be overwhelmed in your look to God because of His provision. 
Look at what God is like. Because when you're hurting and you remember what God is like, it helps you to praise. Verse 5, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord. As I read through this and I studied this some, one question came to my mind. Why did the psalmist mention the God of Jacob? Why Jacob? Why not Abraham or Isaac or David? Why this one? I think it's to remind us that the one who works is the sovereign God who saved us and shows us his grace. Remember the revelation about Jacob, loved his brother, hated. He wasn't loved because he was the greatest. No, he was the youngest. He wasn't loved because of his appearance. It was before he was even born. He wasn't loved because of his actions. In fact, his actions should have warranted him to not be loved by God. Remember, he was the supplanter. He was the deceiver. He was the one who was the position grabber. He was the one who latched onto the heel of Jacob as, or uh, Esau as Esau was being born. And so he shouldn't have been loved by God. But nonetheless, the heel grabber was grabbed by God. Not out of works, not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who purposed to save him. So the doctrine of election might stand. And the point in reflecting on this isn't to figure out if we're a part of some secret club that has some special E that's been, you know, painted onto our chest and run around in pride with that, but instead to recognize the greatness and the wonder of the love of God that has been extended unto us by or through His Son from all eternity. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, because this God has loved us. This God who exists independently by himself from all eternity in glory and majesty and in greatness and perfect union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did purpose to love you and to save you out of your sin and misery in order to display the glory of his name and the greatness of his work in your life. And he intended to do this not after you lived a while so that he would then say, oh, what a cute baby. I couldn't help but have this one in my family. What a gifted or a skilled individual. Surely they will be of benefit or use to the family. But before you were ever born, before you were ever thought of by your parents, before the creation of anything, God purposed to work in your life so that he might then show the wonder of his glory through you. And so the psalmist then tells us, we're happy and we ought to give him praise.
but he also shows himself to be the almighty creator whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then he goes on and says some other stuff. The display of the greatness of his power is then brought out for us here as almighty creator. Consider what he's made. Heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So is there anything that God hasn't made? No. He's covering it all. Reflect for a moment on the vastness and the wonder and the beauty and the glory of the creation that you are a part of. Out where I live in the Dakotas, the expanse of the sky is tremendous. I was telling the Fosters earlier today that the joke in North Dakota is that your child or your dog could run away and you don't have to get up from your seat to chase after them until after three days. Why? Because it's so flat and there are no trees. But you know what's incredible about that? You can see for miles. And you can see from one horizon all the way to the other with there not being anything that would impede your view. The first time that I ever had the experience of seeing the sky in the Dakotas, I felt not even this big because I was so overwhelmed by how great the sky was and that I could see for, for 30 or 40 miles in some any direction that I then began to see just how small I was. The next year, I was driving to camp uh, in the Black Hills, and I was traveling down western North Dakota and western South Dakota, and I then felt so lonely because I didn't see anyone for miles upon miles. I was happy for road construction because it meant there's at least someone else in this world, and I could wave high at them, and the flaggers, yeah, whatever. But why did I feel that way? Because I was so overwhelmed by the vastness of the world that God had made. You have beauty here in terms of the mountains. You can't go anywhere straight. It takes you three times as long to get from point A to point B. But there is some amazing beauty in here in order to see the Appalachians and the Poconos. And if you travel out west to the Rockies or travel in Europe and see the Alps, and you see then the heavens and you see the mountains and you see the wonders of all the creatures that God has filled in this world, how uniquely they're made and how specially they're made and how they're, they're made in order to be able to adapt to the world in which they live, not to mention the ocean and the coverage of, of the waters of the earth covering some 70% of the globe and all the creatures great and small that fill the seas. And then you reflect on the sand on the seashore. One speck that we don't give much thought to, but then the multitude of that speck that then causes there to be miles and miles and miles of shoreline. 
And then you look at the expanse of the sky at night and you see the stars that are there and you see the constellations and you see the galaxies and, and you see it all. And all you can say is that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth His handiwork. And day unto day they utter speech and night unto night there is the evidence of His presence. God shows Himself to be an almighty Creator because this world that He made, He didn't leave it to run its own, but instead He sustains it and He provides for it. He shows Him to be the caretaker, that He oversees this not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. So that we see that, that um, rain and drought and fruitful and barren years and meat and drink and health and sickness and riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by His hand. God cares for and sustains this world that He's made from the greatness of the solar system to the life of a butterfly and everything in between. And what kind of God can do this? What kind of God without consultation or assistance, without having to take multiple steps in order to figure it out or to oversee it, what kind of God simply can intend and speak and make it so? And this is the God that you belong to and that you are called to look to in praise. But we then see He keeps truth. Verse 6, who keeps truth forever. He shows himself to be creator and the sustainer, but also the one who is eternally faithful. He assures us that he's not a man that he should lie. He's never gone back on his promises. He's never retracted his purposes. He in no way teases us or pulls us in to entice us only to capture us and then say, I was just kidding. Here, I'm going to give you this instead. God assures us that regarding His truth, it dwells forevermore as it's from Him. And that any and all promises are true and right. And the one that he made through the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, are all yes and amen in him. The promise of his presence, the assurance of his work, the intention of his goals are all with the understanding that as he says he will, he does. And as he said that he's done, he did. God has revealed his purposes through His Word, which we know is established and settled forever in the heavens. Look to your God in worship of the One who keeps truth forever. The psalmist then takes verses 7, 8, and 9 to go through a whole list of activities that he does in relation to those who live in this world. He notes justice for the oppressed, food for the hungry, freedom for the prisoner, eyes of the blind being open, raising those who are bowed down, loving the righteous, watching over the strangers, relieving the fatherless and the widow. This is the testimony of 
the saints through the ages that God has ultimately cared for His people. In Scripture, we see how He has done this. In history, we see that, that He watches over the persecuted and the abused, that even as the wicked would, would scheme and seek to, to conspire to thwart the plan of God and overcome His people, yet time and again, the Lord intervenes. We saw how Pharaoh sought to undermine uh, the children of Israel by killing all the boys who were two years age and younger, and yet Moses was protected. We saw how Herod also sought to do the same, and God protected Jesus. God watches over and intervenes for His people. No wicked scheme stands against His plan or His purpose. And even in death, the persecuted and afflicted who are taken away from this life stand before the throne of Jesus Christ and they cry out, How long, how long, O Lord? And Jesus assures them that there will be the time once the fullness of measure has come that He then would come and He would make things right. Even those of you who feel afflicted right now and are troubled with some circumstance in your life and think to yourself, yeah, but if God really knew what the other side was doing or if God really knew how this individual was acting or if God was certain about, about the steps that so-and-so was taken, then surely He would fix it right now, and I in turn could praise Him. Do you not believe that Jesus will one day make the rights wrongs? Do you not believe that one day all falsehoods will be brought to the light of truth? Do you not understand that the one who judges the earth does so perfectly and rightly, and therefore he knows your situation, he will act in accordance to his timing and his purposes, that he truly does care for you? So look to him in praise. He does address needs. He shows himself to recognize the hungry and feed them, and he cares for all involved. God knows your physical needs, your emotional needs, your spiritual needs, and he will provide for you in the right time and way. He's never forgotten his people. The psalmist assures us that he's never seen a day where the righteous are begging bread. He's never seen a day where the righteous aren't being provided for by God. He loves his people. He will not abandon them or forsake them or leave them alone. He's not forgotten about you. His, your circumstances don't cloud his vision or his concern. You may feel forgotten. You may feel alone. You may feel left for a time. And yet two things, God is there to meet you on the other side in order to show you how His purposes have been accomplished and His name will be glorified. And even a time of testing and a time of trial, Jesus Himself told Peter, I have prayed for you. Your great high priest is even praying for you now through your situations. 
your great high priest has even shown throughout his life how he cares for all of these categories that are listed here. You recall the time in which he healed blind Bartimaeus? The woman who was hunched over for 18 years, Jesus sought to bring her up so that she then was no longer struck with that affliction. Jesus commends the righteous at the end when he looks at his sheep and he notes those who are righteous versus the goats who are unrighteous and set them into their eternal places. He looks upon the centurion's servant who was a stranger in the house of Israel and yet he commends the faith of the centurion and consequently heals the one who belonged to him. Jesus showed compassion to the widow by noting the fatherless and the widow and raising her son so that he then would be brought back to life showing his compassion and thoughtful care for them and he ultimately turned the plans of the wicked upside down in the ultimate act in his death on the cross when the evil one thought that he could thwart the plans of God and yet Jesus Christ approved by God was raised from the dead in order to secure your justification This isn't a time for despair. It's a time for praise. It's not a time to be cast down. It's a time to look up. It's not a time to question or to doubt. It's a time to believe and consequently go forth empowered by the Spirit, assured that your God acts. Each one of you could also come forward tonight and testify of how God has provided for you. His providential care has sustained you. Even though it may be different than what you expected in the time or the place or the way or the manner, it nonetheless has occurred so that He helps, He acts, and He accomplishes. And yet in all of this, You praise God because he's provided himself. Something I think that we gloss over when we read this psalm. When we look at verses 5 all the way to verse 9, notice how often the word he or the Lord or who is mentioned. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the Lord who made heaven, the Lord who keeps truth, the Lord who executes justice, the Lord who gives food. And then then from verse 7 on, what do we hear? The Lord gives, the Lord opens, the Lord raises, the Lord loves, the Lord watches, he relieves. What does that show you? God in His provision is acting. It is God who is ultimately engaged in your life intimately and personally. It's that God is ultimately providing Himself to you in the action that he engages in in order to address the need or the concern 
that you have. And didn't he ultimately do this in the greatest need that you ever had? Whereas you looked at your life and consider it, that you ultimately were one who needed justice to be served because you had offended the wrath of a holy God. You were ultimately starving spiritually because you were separated from life and strength. You ultimately were enslaved to a cruel taskmaster who did not care for you, who was deceptive, who was indifferent to you, and only sought to inflict his evil plans of death upon you. He blinded you so that you then were deceived from the moment of your birth. You were humbled in such a position that you could never be raised up. You were separated from righteousness and from a holy God. And yet God intervened. God worked. God directed. God accomplished. God applied so that destruction and decay and lifelessness and blindness and hopelessness was completely eradicated. And so what does the psalmist tell us? Praise the Lord. The Lord ultimately reigns. Give Him praise. Man is no real helper. The Lord truly presents Himself and provides. And He shows this by way of His nature, by way of His character, by way of His perfections. He personally cares for you as His special child. And so the psalmist then calls us to take comfort and strength and confidence, to yield praise to our God corporately and individually and encourage one another accordingly in the greatness of God's presence. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as you reign forevermore in our God, we praise you for your person. We praise you for your character. We praise you for your perfections. We praise you for your attributes. We praise you for your care. And we pray that we would yield our lives as instruments of thankfulness to declare by means of our actions, to demonstrate by, or to declare by our words and to demonstrate by our actions a life of praise yielded unto you every day of our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.